So our speaker tonight is Brother Keith Harris. We're glad that he's here, and he is a preaching minister at the Louisville Church of Christ. He graduated from Harding with a bachelor's in ministry in 2004. He is currently working on his doctorate of ministry at Freed Hardman, and Keith has a blog at be the good be the good dot life had to practice that one be the good dot life um, and be the good Facebook page he also has and that is to challenge and encourage us as followers to show others Jesus by our example. Keith is married to Lindsay and they have two children Cade and Zoe uh, and together they love to serve the Lord and his church and they enjoy golf traveling and calling the hogs. Very good. Keith, you want to come bring our message? Well, I can't tell you how delighted I am to be here tonight, and I will say I'm very humbled as well. Tonight, um, Wes is not here because Wes is at Louisville. Uh, and talk about a rather intimidating pulpit swap, man. Uh, but Wes is a good friend of mine. I, um, things are getting stuck up here. There we go. Um, and uh, I appreciate him so much uh, and his heart and his desire to serve. I appreciate his ability to preach the gospel, uh, and he does so with such passion. And one of the things that uh, I guess Wes and I have in connection is that, you know, he's not from Arkansas, but at least he was a minister in Arkansas for a little while, right? Uh, in Leachville, which is only about 30 miles from where I grew up, uh, and, uh, and then he was in Hot Springs for a while while we were in Batesville serving there at the church. Um, and so at least we had that little bit of Arkansas connection. Uh, but it's wonderful to be with you tonight. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to go there in just a moment. There was a little boy, he was five years old, he was in the kitchen with his mom, and uh, she was uh, cooking the meal and everything, she was trying to gather everything up, but she had uh, several things going at once, and she looked over to her son and said, uh, honey, would you go to the pantry and get me a can of tomato soup? Uh, and he said, no, I, I'm scared, it's dark in there, I, I, I don't want to go. And she asked him again and again, he resisted, and finally she said, well, look, honey, it's, it's okay. Jesus is going to be in there with you. And so he thought, okay. And he started making his way over to the door, and he got over to it, and he eased the door open. And he looked inside, and he saw how dark it was in there, and he started to turn around and leave when something hit him. And he thought, okay. So he turned back around, and he peered into the darkness, and he said, Hey, Jesus, if you're in there, will you hand me that can of tomato soup? You know, life, life can be uh, very challenging. Life can be scary at times, can it? There's times where we don't want to do the things that we have to do, the things that are before us, and we feel like, well, I, maybe, I can just, maybe I can just skirt around this particular circumstance or that particular issue. And the reality is we live in a world that is increasingly hostile toward the things that we believe or hold dear. And that challenges us because in those moments we see the darkness there and we say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. And so we end up retreating, don't we? Life can be very scary, and the reality for us is that there's a spiritual battle that's terrifying. 
When we look at our world today and we see the reality of the hostility that exists and how scary that is to us, we have to come back to the fact that God is with us. God promises us He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And the reality for us is that we can have certainty when it comes to knowing God will provide comfort and strength in the midst of our challenging circumstances, whatever they may be. And that wonderful sense of comfort and strength ought to give us a great sense of hope in this life. As Peter closed uh, his first letter to the Christians that were in exile or scattered throughout Asia Minor, as it were, um, he brought to them a word of encouragement, one uh, that helped them in the face of the scary world in which they were living. And they were dealing and suffering with uh, a lot of persecution at the moment. Uh, and uh, their persecution was not just because people didn't agree with them, but their, their persecution was because of the faith that they actually professed. And because of that, Peter shared with them the attitudes and the actions that he believes or that God is putting on his heart to write down for us that these are the attitudes and actions that ought to be present in your life and they will sustain you through the grace of God because of the hope that, ha that we have in Christ. And so in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is closing this letter. And if you look at verse uh, 5 and following, uh, he's, he's already talked a little bit about the fact that uh, you, you need to submit. It's all about uh, humility and submission. But look at verse 5. Uh, the end of verse 5. Close your, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Uh, have humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Now, a familiar passage to us, I'm sure. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And do this with one another. Now, what happens prior to this is that we come to realize there is this connection between uh, humility and submission. These are attitudes and actions that are inseparably linked. And when we look at humility and submission, and particularly from Peter's point of view here, we do so from the perspective of people who were suffering and struggling, and yet at the same time understanding they are called to something that's much deeper than what the world is saying they ought to be. And for Peter, he just simply wants these Christians to know that yes, life is difficult, it's scary, and there are certain attitudes and actions that we can have that we ought to understand will benefit us as we look toward the victory and the glory that are awaiting us. Dwight Eisenhower once said that there are no victories at discount prices, and certainly that's true with regard to the spiritual journey that we're on. And as followers of Jesus, we are to live in humble submission to the will of God. Back in the earlier chapters of this particular letter that Peter wrote, he commands the Christians that they should be submissive to the government authorities. And he tells servants that they need to be submissive to their masters and wives to their husbands. And then he makes his way here into chapter 5 and he says, you know, shepherds need to understand their role. And so just as the shepherds 
uh, submit themselves to the chief shepherd, so too a congregation ought to submit itself to its shepherds. I love Hebrews 13, verse 17. It's a, a helpful passage with regard to understanding submission and cooperation with leadership. Here's what the Hebrew writer said. Obey your leaders uh, and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. And then notice this. Obey them so that their work may bring joy or may be with joy. Not a burden, he says, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so this connection of submitting to our leaders is the same as, as we look at following the will of God. And in a very real sense, in our relationships with one another, humility and submission are inseparably linked. And, and Peter then says, clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. The word here that's used literally means to tie something on oneself. Clothe yourselves. Tie something on oneself. And it had to do with a servile garb. The garment that a servant would wear, we might call it an apron. But it was a designation. It was something that they would tie around themselves as they would work. And people would see this and they would know oh, there's, that's a servant there. And I wonder if when Peter was writing this, if he recalled the time when Jesus did just that. It's John 13 where we see Jesus tying a towel around himself and washing the disciples' feet, giving them and us a wonderful example of what it means to be a servant. I'm convinced that if we want to be like Jesus, then we need to clothe ourselves with humility. And to reinforce this particular point, Peter quotes from Proverbs 3 and verse 34, where he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, God hates the pride that we have in our lives from time to time. The sin of pride is something that is detestable to God. And I'm convinced that pride sets a person against God. But humility, on the other hand, is something that God is attracted to. Something that pleases God. Something that God blesses. And so when Peter concludes this point, he does so by saying, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Again, we're thinking about submission and humility and they are an act of faith. God's mighty, sovereign hand is descriptive of God's work, of God's will, His activity in our life. And Peter wanted the people to whom he was writing to understand and to know that the persecution that they were experiencing, all of the suffering that they were enduring at that particular moment was something that they needed to endure humbly and submissively. And we see this reality in 1 Peter chapter 2 where there he's identifying the fact that if you suffer because of something that you have done that's wrong and you endure that particular suffering, well, big deal. That's a paraphrase, obviously, of what Peter's saying. But he's saying big deal. If you suffer because you've done something wrong, well, that, you had that coming to you. 
But if you suffer for doing good, if there's things that you're doing and, and yet you're still receiving persecution or, or you're, you're suffering through hardship and you take it patiently, you endure, Peter says there in chapter 2, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And ultimately then there in chapter 2, he sets Jesus up as the example. He says, remember Jesus, He's the one that also suffered unjustly and yet He endured patiently. So much so that He continued entrusting Himself to God. And that's exactly what Peter is wanting us to see throughout his text. He's saying this is so vital to what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a world that is so hostile toward Him and toward God. And certainly we can identify with that today, can't we? I'm convinced that this word from Peter was a word of great encouragement to these people who were suffering and struggling mightily. When we come to find this humility that God is calling us to have, when we humbly submit to His will, I'm convinced that we can find strength to carry on, strength to see His purpose to see His care in our life. Peter said to cast all our anxiety on God. That to me means that we can cast on God our discontentment, our discomfort, the discouragement that we face. We can cast on God all of our questioning, all of the doubts that seem to creep in. We can cast on God all of the pain that we experience. We can cast on God all of the trials that we encounter, whatever they may be. And we do that because we trust in God. We trust in His faithfulness, in His love, in His power, in His wisdom. Humility allows us to see the victory that God provides. Look at verses 8 and 9. Peter goes on to say, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. A powerful section, one again that is no doubt familiar to us, but I want you to think of it in terms of the context in which Peter is writing this. Again, writing to people who are suffering, who are being persecuted, and who need to hear this word of encouragement. And he says, here's what you need to do. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Recognize that He's the one that will exalt you. And make sure that you understand that there is an adversary. There's an enemy. Again, humility and submission are all through this particular text. But this command to be watchful includes two commands within itself. To be sober-minded, he says, and be watchful. Another translation of sober-minded would be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. The basic idea is that uh, we have to approach God, we have to approach one another with clear thinking not with intoxication. Go to Romans chapter 12 for just a moment. Romans 12. I love this because Paul has been 
uh, he'd been dealing with this uh, particular issue with the church in Rome for the entire book. And he, as he's writing this letter to them, uh, he is wanting them to understand who they are in Christ. Now, the issue that was going on in Rome is that there was an internal struggle between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, in A.D. 49, Claudius, uh, the, the emperor, put forth an edict that all Jews had to leave Rome. And so, as a result, the Jews that were there that had uh, no doubt helped to establish the church there in Rome were forced to leave. But now we know there were Gentile converts that were part of that congregation when the Jews had to leave. And so uh, it, it seems to, or stands to reason rather that they would have continued on in the leadership of that church. Well, in AD 54, Claudius died. And when an emperor died, uh, the edicts that he put forth, that's what happened. And so the Jews then at that point were allowed to come back in. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome in the winter of 56 and 57. And you can imagine what happened when the Jews started coming back in. Imagine those Jewish leaders who were forced to leave, didn't want to leave, but they were forced to leave, and, uh, and they left it in the hands of the Gentiles, of all people. Uh, but nevertheless, left it in the hands of the Gentiles, right? And finally, now they're able to make their way back in, and you can almost picture in your mind, because they are human like we are, but you can almost picture in their mind as they come back in, they look at the Gentiles and they say, appreciate you guys holding down the fort for us while we were gone, but we'll assume our role again. Well, that didn't fly very well with the Gentiles. And so there was this issue, this internal conflict, and so as you read through the letter to the Romans, you can see it over and over and over again. Paul transitioning his focus, speaking to the Gentiles, speaking to the Jews, speaking to the Gentiles, speaking to the Jews over and over, back and forth until finally we come to this point in chapter 12. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's where we always seem to stop. Because those two verses we look at and we say, these are great verses, but I want you to look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, that's Jews and Gentiles, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That is a powerful statement. We don't read it in that way in our English because, as I said, we often stop after verse 2 and then we just, oh, okay, now the next part, we'll keep reading. But verse 3 is powerful for them. Because what Paul is saying is, is here you guys have been fighting among one another. You've been bickering and complaining and you're, you've got this power struggle going on. But what you have to do is remember, don't be patterning yourself like the world does. Understand what humility is all about and understand what thinking of yourself clearly is all about. And so, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. What Paul is telling them is this. Don't be self-intoxicated. Don't be self-intoxicated. How easy is it for us today to get to that point? Self-intoxication. 
in a world that says it's all about me. That seems rather simple, doesn't it? But we need to have our minds disciplined, be watchful, be alert. And I'm convinced that we should be self-controlled and alert because we do have a dangerous enemy. One who is at war with us. And I'm convinced that the realities of the spiritual war call for vigilance. We cannot relax. We cannot be caught off guard or asleep. And Peter identifies the devil as our adversary. And we certainly need to understand that reality. We need to understand that the devil is real, that he's extremely dangerous, and he has a great power and intelligence. He has a host of demons who assist him in his attacks. He's a formidable opponent, a formidable enemy. And we never need to underestimate him. I love the way Peter describes him with the imagery of a lion. Peter has chosen a, an animal that's ferocious and terrifying. And there are few animals in the animal kingdom who terrify people in the wild more than a lion. My wife might say a lizard, but she's not here. But I wonder... I don't know this, but I wonder if when Peter was writing that about the lion, if he may have had in his mind what was occurring in the Colosseum where people were thrown out into the midst of that Colosseum and lions were released and all of this was for the entertainment of the people. I wonder if he had that in his mind. Certainly that would be a, a reality that would befall many Christians in the very near future as a form of extreme persecution. Peter says that the devil is like a prowling lion. It's easy to envision the way that lions seek out their prey. And they often look for the weak one. They look for the one who is separated off from the pack. And just before they attack, they will roar. A deep roar whose decibel level causes within uh, other animals this sense of, I need to freeze. What's going on? That kind of feeling. And their prey will freeze in fear. Peter's command in the face of Satan's attack is resist him. Stand firm in your faith because you know that your brothers that are across the world, they're experiencing the same things that you are. You're not alone. Resist the devil by being firm in your faith. And since the devil is a liar and a deceiver, I'm, I'm sure that the only way that we can stand against him is by the power of God, but through faithful obedience to biblical truth. And I'm convinced too that we need to resist the devil the way that Jesus did, and that is through the Word of God. And we must never forget that others are facing the same attacks. We're not alone. And we need to remember that other people are watching. There are people who've been faithful in the face of attacks that are great examples for us. And we too need to serve as an example for others. And we need to stand firm for the sake of others. We must be watchful. We must be self-controlled. We must be alert. We have to bow before God 
so that we can take our stand against the devil. Being sober-minded and watchful uh, will help us on our journey toward victory. Look at verses 10 and 11. I'm, back, I'm sorry, I'm back in 1 Peter 5. It says, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love this passage because, number one, it tells us that our suffering is only for a little while. It's not going to last. And the reality is, we can endure anything if we know that it's not going to be forever. And that's what Peter's trying to encourage them with, is, yes, you're suffering now. Yes, the world is hard to live in. Yes, we're faced with all kinds of challenging circumstances where we're not even sure what we need to say in a particular situation. But I can know that the suffering that I'm enduring, that this world that I'm living in that's so challenging to me right now, it's not going to be forever. But God is going to, He's going to help me by restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing me. And I can have hope because of that. Peter closed this letter with a positive note. He reminded his readers that God knows what He's doing. And God is in control. And we ought to always remember that God is in control. And no matter how difficult the fiery trial may be, no matter how difficult our circumstance may be, a Christian always has hope. And Peter gave several reasons why we can have a hopeful attitude. We should have hope because of God's grace. And Peter calls God the God of all grace there in verse 10. This is reminiscent, at least for me, of, of what Paul had to say uh, concerning God as the God of all comfort. But Peter says He's the God of all grace. Peter encourages us to stand firm in the grace of God and how wonderful it is to know that we've been saved by grace through faith. And all of this is because of God's wonderful love for us as He's demonstrated His love by giving His Son. What a wonderful blessing. All of this should give us hope. And I think too, we should be hopeful because our suffering will end. As I said a moment ago, it's not going to be forever. And we can endure as long as we know that it's not going to be forever. And when we're living through trials and persecutions, we suffer for Christ's sake. If we are faithful, if we are found faithful, then we are following in the steps of Jesus. And that's exactly what Peter had said previously in chapter 2, as I mentioned earlier. That Jesus is the one who left us an example that we should follow in His steps. And he goes on to explain the fact that Jesus is the one who endured patiently. And that's what we're called to. And we can do that when we know that our suffering will end. And we should be hopeful because we know that we're going on to glory. Peter said that God has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Earlier in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 4, 
There, Peter said that that can never spoil or fade. And it's being kept for us in heaven. God is guarding it for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, there Paul wrote, For the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. This experience that we're having right now is creating for us this glory that doesn't even compare with the things that we experience now. And certainly we see things that are glorious and wonderful. We look out in the evenings and we see the beautiful sunsets when it's not 110 degrees. We'll look out there and we see that it's beautiful. And it looks glorious. But it's not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. We can rest knowing that we have hope in Christ and victory through the grace of God. Paul always ended his letters with a benediction of grace. But it's interesting to me that Peter does something a little different. Peter begins his letter with, a, with, a, uh, with an opening of, uh, of peace. And he ends with a benediction of peace. And why is that interesting? Well, because I would say this, from beginning to end, Peter wants us to know the peace of God. Something that was especially meaningful to the people of his day who were suffering persecution beyond measure. How wonderful is it for us today to know the peace of God. Peter has given us a precious letter. One that encourages us to hope in the Lord no matter what is happening. And we've been given this new birth through the living hope that we have in Christ. And all of this is brought about by the resurrection of Jesus. I mentioned verse 4 of chapter 1 just a moment ago, but think about what happens in chapter 3 as he opens. Right there he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one, he goes on to say, that has given us or caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Why is our hope living? Because Jesus is living. And from that point forward, Peter goes on to describe in great detail this wonderful hope that we have in Christ. The Christian life is not easy. It's not easy in a world that says there's no such thing as absolute truth. It's not easy in a world that says you can't tell me what to believe. Maybe it's right for you, but it's not necessarily right for me. Many years ago, on a late night talk show, the Archbishop of Canterbury was the first guest on the show. Jane Fonda was on there as well. And as they used to do, the guests would move down and let the, the next guest up. And the conversation was ensuing. And it, it, uh, it came to this point with the archbishop of, uh, of uh, a discussion about who Jesus was. Um, and, and Jane Fonda, in response to the archbishop saying that he was the son of God, she said to him, well, maybe he is to you, but he's not to me. I love the archbishop's response back. Well, either he is or he isn't. For us, we live in a world that may look at us and say, there's no God. And who are you to tell me that there is? 
There's no Jesus who died for you. And maybe he did die, but he died because of things that he did. And, and he's not, certainly not the Son of God in that kind of world that tells us, who are you to tell me that there is a Jesus? Or to tell me what I should believe? Or how I should live? We don't look at that as persecution per se. Or suffering in and of itself. But I'm convinced that's what we're dealing with right now. It's a different kind than what was going on back in the first century. But the reality remains the same. Peter's saying, humble yourself before God. Recognize who you are as a follower of Jesus. And remember that the devil is real. And he's trying to draw you away. And the important factor is to recognize that even though the Christian life is not easy, and overcoming the attacks of the enemy is not easy. And faithful service to Jesus can be challenging and exhausting. Remember, the power, the comfort, the grace, the peace come from God. David Livingston went as a missionary to the darkest part of Africa. And after some time, the mission field, his missions committee sent word to him and said, hey, we have some people who want to join you. What's the easiest road to get to where you are? And he sent back word to them. He said, if they're looking for the easiest road, tell them to stay in England. I want people who will come even if there's no road at all. We've got to remember, yes, it may be tough. Life may be hard at times. But God calls us to patient endurance. And the truth is, the way is hard. But Peter is still saying to each one of us today, be hopeful. Glory and victory are on the way. Would you pray with me? God, thank You so much for being our God. Thank You for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank You for Your grace, for Your mercy, for your comfort, for your strength, for your restoration. We thank you, Father, for salvation. And help us as we face the challenges of this world to continue trusting in you, knowing that you are forever faithful. Thank you for the love you demonstrate through the giving of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.